You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. We just praise the Lord for what He has done, and we look ahead to this network of new churches that will join us as well. So you be praying for Pastor Josh and Pastor Joe, that God will give them wisdom and favor, and that we'll do this all together. Christmas Day, 1821, a baby girl named Clarissa was born. Clarissa was born in Oxford, Massachusetts. She grew up there, and she became a teacher at age 18. She was very good at teaching. In fact, she began America's first free public school, and she did that for a period of time, but unfortunately, it didn't work out long term, and so she transitioned from there to working for the federal government. She was one of the first females to join the federal government's workforce in Washington, D.C. She served there for a period of time, and man, she was talented. She was driven, did very well, but again, unfortunately, it didn't work out for her career-wise, and so she had to step away, and so she found herself in her mid-30s, frustrated, not with a real sense of calling on her life. Where is she going to go? What's she going to do long term? So she goes back home to Oxford, Massachusetts, spends three or four years there, and then Abraham Lincoln gets elected president, 1861. So she returns to Washington, begins resuming her job with the government, and then shortly after, as you know, the Civil War began. Well, after the war began, Union soldiers began flooding into, pouring into Washington, D.C., And on one particular day, the 6th Infantry Unit out of Massachusetts came to Baltimore. And when they showed up there at the train station, some Confederate supporters uh, attacked them and wounded some of the soldiers. Well, Clarissa heard about it, and her sister heard about it, and some other women, and they made their way to the train station. And when they got there, Clarissa realized, hey, I know some of these people. Many of them were childhood friends she had grown up with. Uh, About 40 of them were former students that she had taught. And all of a sudden, she began feeling a sense of calling. All of a sudden, it was, hey, I don't know what I'm going to do in my life, To I know exactly what I'm doing. And she had this passion to take care of these wounded soldiers because she would watch them and she thought, where are they going to go? What are they going to do? Who's going to take care of them? And so right there, a passion was birthed inside of her to help hurting people. And no one had to tell her what to do. I mean, this woman was on top of it. She began sacrificing personally of her time, of her own finances, and she began serving these wounded soldiers. You see, when we're passionate about something, we find a way to get it done, don't we? Some of you are passionate about exercise. Hey, you find a way to get it done. Some of you are passionate about college football, unless your team's not doing well, and you find a way to watch the game, don't you? Whatever we're passionate about, some of you are passionate about traveling, Hey, you find a way to work it into your budget. When we're passionate about something, no one has to tell us how to get it done. We just do it. And when we're passionate about Jesus Christ, we should be following him in every area of our life. No one should have to tell us, hey, Barry, you really ought to be doing this. I should, I should just be passionate because I love him. I'm reading his word. I should be passionate about him and for him. One area we should be passionate about serving Jesus is in the workplace. Everything we do there, because we're not working for a company, right? We're working for Jesus. That's what Colossians 3.23 talks about. Do your work as unto the Lord. There was a study that came out earlier this year by the Gallup organization. I I thought this was shocking. You, you You may not find this surprising. But did you know they looked at workers all over the world. They, they discovered 80% of employees are disengaged. 80%. 
Do you know what disengaged means? It means there's low morale, low productivity, low creativity, low innovation. There's no emotional attachment to the job. It's just, hey, I'm just collecting a check. I'm just going through the motions. Really don't care about my boss. Not really supportive of what they're wanting to do. That's 80% of of the workforce. That means only 20% are actually engaged in their work. Isn't that wild? I can tell you're deeply moved. I was shocked by that. 80%. Now, Christians had better be a part of that 20%. That, that we realize, hey, I'm not just working for a company. I'm working for the Lord. I'm here to serve him. This is my opportunity. This is my mission field. I get to serve Jesus here in, in this place. And another area besides our employment where we should be passionate is giving of our finances to the Lord. And I want to talk to you about giving today. And just take, a, just take a deep breath. Come on, come on. Just take a deep breath. Just relax. Okay, we don't have to be uptight. We're talking about giving because it's in the word of God and we want, to be, we want to handle this with integrity. We're going to talk about giving. And as we, as we think about giving, I estimate there's three categories of people. Some of you give and you know why you give. You give because you see everything. You belong to God. You're his child. You understand, hey, what I have is really his. I'm a manager, not an owner. Some of you, you that's where probably a lot of you are. And you give out of, out of joy and generosity to him. Now, there's others of you, you give, but you don't know why you give. Maybe it's because you're a new Christian and no one's taught you. And so you think, I don't know, I guess I should be giving. So you just give. Or maybe you saw your parents do it. You thought, well, they gave, maybe I should give. But you can't really articulate why you should give. And then there's a third category of people who don't give. And there's two subcategories here. The first is you really like to give, but you can't. You can't because you don't have it. Maybe there's medical bills, student loan debt. There's, there's something going on that's preventing you from giving. You think, man, if I could just give, but, but you can't. And then there, the second subcategory there is you give, you don't give, because you, you don't understand why. Why would, why would I give? Why, would, you know, why does the church talk about money? Why should I give to them? And so you probably fall into one of those three categories. So this morning, I want to talk to you about five reasons that we should be giving. Five reasons we should be giving. And this is based on 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to pick it up in verse 16 and go all the way, all the way through chapter 9, verse 5. All of that is one unit together. And I want to just, just pull out five principles here, five reasons why you and I should be giving. This whole chapter of chapter 8 is about giving. Chapter 9 is as well. And the context here is Paul was talking about an offering, an offering that was to be collected for the church in Jerusalem. Now, there's some churches in Macedonia who had given to this offering, and Paul had written to the church in Corinth all the way back at the end of the 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 3, and he said, hey, set aside an offering on the first day of the week, and when I come, I'll collect it. So that's what the Corinthians were supposed to be doing, but unfortunately, they had not done that yet. And so a whole year had passed, and now Paul's writing to them from Macedonia. We don't know if he was in Berea if he was in Thessalonica or if he was in Philippi, wherever he was, he's writing this church to say, essentially, guys, I need you to finish the job. I'm glad you're eager. I'm glad you were ready, but I need you to finish this offering. Go ahead and, and complete it so that when I show up, it'll be ready. Now, we're in a series called One Heart, and we'll be there the next, uh, next week, and then uh, Pastor will finish it up on November the 7th with Celebration Sunday. We have one service that day. It's great to have those. We, we, we're one family. We love to be together. So that'll be a celebration time. We'll have lunch on the grounds afterwards. 
And um, we look, really look forward to that. But we've been talking about what are, where is God leading us as a church for the next couple of years? What's the vision we feel like God's given us? And so that's what we've been talking about. And it's not building a lot of things. It's planting churches and hopefully replanting churches and, and sending out money to help start other churches. And so as we talk these next few weeks, we'll be sharing a little bit more about what we feel God's been leading us to do as a church. Now, we're here in verse 16. And the first word, of my ESV starts out, but it says, but thanks be to God. Really, the first word there is thanks. It's charis, also interpreted grace or giving. If you look back up in chapter 8, verse 1, it's where Paul mentions the grace of God. That's the charis of God. And so he's, he's talking about Titus here. And Paul is thanking God for Titus. He says, charis, charis be to God. Thanks be to God. Why? Because God put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. Paul had an earnest care for these believers in Corinth. He said, God put that same desire into Titus. Titus wasn't just a, a, just a great good old boy who had, you know, loved people. He was just naturally friendly and all of those things. I'm sure he was a nice guy. But God put into his heart a desire to love people, a desire to care for people. And that is a gift from God. Paul goes back, if you look back in Philippians, you remember Philippians 2, where he's talking about Timothy and he says, I, he, Paul says, I have no one else like him who genuinely cares for the welfare of others. There's not that many people out there like that. He said, I don't have anyone else like him because everybody else is looking out for themselves. Whereas Timothy is looking out for the interest of Christ. And so he said, Titus is one of those. Titus, God has worked in his life and God has given him a care for other people. He has an earnest care, it says. He has a zeal, a willingness to care for other people. But Titus was not going to travel alone. Look in verse 17. Um, Paul says, for he, he not only accepted an earnest appeal, talking about Titus, but being himself very earnest, he's going uh, of his own accord. I didn't have to give him a lecture. I mean, he just willingly volunteered to go. But verse uh, 18, with him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. We don't know this, this gentleman's name. Um, some would say it was Apollos because he was mighty in the scriptures. So this guy's well known for his preaching. So maybe that was Apollos. Maybe it was Barnabas. He was an encourager. Maybe it was Luke or maybe it was Tychicus. We don't, we don't know exactly who it was, but this guy was well known for his preaching ability. He was known for being faithful to the text and he was known for being polished in his presentation. He was, he was well known for his preaching. So Paul says, we're going to send him with Titus and there's going to be another gentleman that goes with him as well. But they're going there to take this offering and then take it to Jerusalem. And not only that, verse 19, but he, that is this, this other gentleman, has been appointed by the churches. That is the churches elected him. The church has decided to send these people. Paul didn't select all these people. And we're going to talk about why in just a minute. Paul didn't say, I'm sending my buddies down there and they're going to take this offering. No, and he didn't do that. The church has decided who was going to go and, and collect this offering and take it back. The churches did that. And so he says, um, he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us. What's the act of grace? That's the offering. That's the offering that was going to be collected and taken to the church at Jerusalem. 
And it is an act of grace because we're not naturally generous. I don't know about you. I'm not naturally generous. I'm naturally greedy. I'm naturally selfish. I'm naturally stingy. And it's only by the grace of God that we give anything. So he said, that's why it's an act of grace. It's because God works in their hearts. And now all of a sudden you have generous people. And it just, it, it brings God glory, he says, for the glory of the Lord himself. Because it shows God can change people. God can take stingy, selfish people and by the power of the Holy Spirit change them to where they live open-handed and say, hey, uh, do you have a need? Man, I'd love to help with this need. And that's the, that's the power of the God. It brings glory to Jesus because it shows he has power to change people and to show our goodwill. Now, why would it show their goodwill? Well, they would show a Gentile church taking care of Jewish believers. That, that would also bring God honor because as you remember in Ephesians 2, Paul talks about the dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles. There was a hatred between these two and it would show the goodwill to say, hey, we don't see each other, as Paul says, from a fleshly point of view anymore. We see you as brothers and sisters in Christ. And you have needs, and we're all part of the same family, and so we're going to help each other. And so it would bring glory to God, and it would show the goodwill of the church. Now, so I'm going to give you five reasons why we should give, okay? Here's the first. Our giving is communal, not simply personal. Our giving is communal, not simply personal. Now, Giving is foundationally personal. It is ultimately between you and God because God's looking at your heart. But that's not where it stops. It, your, your giving extends beyond you, beyond this church, into the kingdom of God. Look, look, look at the text. Look at all the people involved in this offering. The Corinthians, Titus, the brother who is famous, soon to be another brother, Paul, the Macedonian churches, and the Jerusalem church. All those people were involved in one offering. See, the Macedonian churches gave personally, but it went beyond them. It was just a communal gift. So when you give to the Lord here, yes, it is between you and God, but it extends beyond the Lord. It extends beyond that to impact the kingdom of God. Let me give you an example. There are 79 full-time and part-time employees at this church. Now that includes, we're not all pastors, that includes the staff of the Early Learning Center downstairs during the week. 127 children are here during the week. We're ministering to them. We're ministering to the families. We were passing out Fall Fest invitations the other day, trying, inviting them there, trying to love on these parents and grandparents as they come through. 79 full-time and part-time employees. And I, just, I want to say thank you. Thank you for your generous giving. We, we consider it, it's a privilege to serve you, not a right. It is a privilege and one of our pastors back there shaking his head. It is a privilege to serve you. And there are pastors all over the world who are bivocational because their church can't pay them enough. And this is just something we do on the side. So I just want to say thank you. When God called me into ministry, it took about uh, nine years or so before I got on with the church full time. I worked almost eight of those with a secular company. Just because not every church can hire people full time. And so I, I appreciate it. I don't take it for granted. Our staff does not take it for granted. So because of your generous giving, we're able to serve you and write curriculum and, and teach children all the things that we try to do to equip you to do the work of ministry. So thank you for your generous giving. But your giving also impacts other people. Your giving uh, offsets ministry opportunities. Vacation Bible School, we don't charge for Vacation Bible School. That's a community outreach thing. It costs money, but we don't charge for it. Your giving allows us to do that. Student ministry camp, we don't charge as much as we should because your giving offsets some of that. 
Midweek meals, when we eat in here on Wednesday night, hey, if you have multiple kids, can you eat anywhere for $25? You can't. That, that's the family max is $25. I, I know you can't, okay? So $25. Well, how can we charge that? Because you give. Because your giving offsets that cost. There's so many other things that we are able to do as a church because you give. And we're able to be a blessing to the community. Third, your giving supports mission opportunities. Your giving provides mission scholarships so that when people go on a trip, we say, hey, I know you got some money to raise, but here's, here's a part of that off because we, we serve a generous church. We're able to serve mission partners in Vermont, New Orleans, Georgia, uh, internationally in London and all, all over the place, Central Asia, Nepal. So when you give, yes, it's between you and God, but it extends beyond that it's all over the world. You're part of God's kingdom work all over the world. So that's the first reason. The second reason we should give is found in verses 20 and 21. Uh, Paul says, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift. What, what's he talking about? The first word there in the sentence is avoid. You have to pay attention to the first and last words and sentences because they're there for emphasis. So he's saying, avoid, uh, avoid. What, what is it? What is it that he wants to avoid? He wants to avoid any hint that he's embezzling money. Paul doesn't want there to be any hint that he's lying in his pockets with money off of this offering. So he's saying, I, I want to I avoid the, uh, the, the perception that money's being mishandled here. And so the word blame is, means to find fault with, to criticize. So I want to avoid any type of fault finding, any type of critical spirit where someone could look and say, hmm, that just doesn't look right. So that's why Paul's not even going with them. That's why Titus and these two other unnamed people are going to collect the offering. Paul's not going to collect the offering because it doesn't look right. Because he says this is a generous gift in verse 20. The, the, the term generous really means fatness. And fatness in agricultural terms means, meant abundance. Meant that God had blessed abundantly. So this was a sizable financial offering. And Paul is saying essentially, I don't, I'm not going to have anything to do with this. You take it up. These people are coming to pick it. And I'm not, I'm not going to be there. I don't want any scent of fraudulence concerning this offering. I don't want to be a part of it. Generous also means thick or rich, great, stout. This was a, this was a huge offering. You had Macedonian churches. You had corn. You put all that together. This was a large offering. And Paul says, I want nothing to do with it. The term for honorable, verse 21, says, For we aim at what is honorable. Honorable means above board. We're, we're going to do this above board, Paul says. I, 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 you're not going to be able to criticize me of anything here. Fishy. Um, we're we're going to do what's above board. One, one uh, source wrote this. It's not enough for one's financial accounts to be honorable as God sees them, but they should be so kept that men can understand them also. They'll be, they may already be out there. If they're not, they'll be out there soon. The next year's proposed budget. You ought to be able to pick up the church budget and understand it. You know, you may not understand every category, but you ought to be able to look at it and say, okay, I see where every dollar is allotted to. You shouldn't pick it up and go, I have no idea what this means. I need someone to interpret for me. Now, we'll have meetings where you can ask questions and those kind of things, but it should be clear. It should be transparent exactly what's happening here. Um, one source wrote, if the conduct of the fundraiser can be faulted, then the gospel itself can be called into question. The term for aim means to plan beforehand. Paul's being proactive. He's planning beforehand so that so when he arrives, the work's already done. He doesn't have to be a part of collecting all this. 
In this verse, in verse 21, he's referring back to Proverbs chapter 3, in verses 3 and 4, where it's talking about binding, bind uh, steadfastness and faithfulness around your neck. That's what he's talking about. So he's saying, hey, there's going to be a faithfulness about me when it comes to handling money. There's gonna, you're not going to be able to criticize me when it comes to that. Uh, one source wrote, there will always be those who judge the claims of Christ by the lives of those who claim to be his followers. Well, that's so true, isn't it? People are watching. People watch how we handle ourselves in our neighborhoods, and they watch how churches are handling money. And unfortunately, it gets some churches in a lot of trouble. But he says here, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, because ultimately we're, we're here to please him, but also in the sight of man. Now, I interpret man as the lost man, as unbelievers. So he's saying we're going to do things above board, one, because we want to please Jesus, but also because there's a watching world and they're paying attention. And so we're going to do things above board so they have no reason to say that, uh, I don't want to be a part of that because they just, they don't handle money very well. So here's our second reason that we should give. Our giving is an opportunity to honor God and win people. Our giving is an opportunity to honor God, but also to win people. So we should do things with such integrity that people go, man, I'd love to be a part of that. I mean, they, they do things well. They take care of their business. There's nothing fishy going on there. So I, it, we, I, the way we handle things can win people to Christ. And so I want to share just with you quickly how we handle money here at Valleydale. That's not something we talk about a lot, but I want you to know, you're a member of this church. You need to know how things are handled here. Now, many of you give online. And so obviously no one's handling your money except the bank. It's just an electronic transaction. But if you give, there's two little boxes out there. And if you give, if you place an offering in that box, I want you to know where your money goes, okay? So there are ushers that will come later and they will take the offerings in there and they go put them in a safe, okay? Now, would you find it strange if after the service of one of the pastors was, you know, taking the box, you go, hey, where are you going? Oh, I'm just going to my office to count the money. That would, that would be a little strange, wouldn't it? We don't do that. So there's, we have ushers. Ushers will take the money and go put it in a safe, okay? Nobody but the finance committee has the code to that safe. I, pastors don't have it. Elders, deacons, we don't, we don't have it. We can't get in the safe. So they, they put it in the safe. On, Sunday, on uh, Monday morning, two ladies, staff members, not one, two, will come and they get the money out of the safe and they count it. Then they deposit it into the bank. Okay, so the budget is overseen by staff members, but ultimately we're accountable to the finance committee. Well, who's the finance committee? You are. We have people, men and women, that are lay people in this church, and they're the finance committee, and they oversee the budget, and we are accountable as a staff to them. You say, well, that sounds great. How do you get on the finance committee? We have a nominating committee, and the nominating committee nominates people to be on the finance committee, men and women, who many of them are in the financial world, and you understand those kinds of things, and we're accountable to them. So they, they oversee the operational, the income and expenditures of the church. And by the way, we pay for an external audit every year. An, an outside firm will come in and they will look at all of our financial transactions and we pass every year. And so that's an expense for us, but we do it so we can be above board. So that if you have questions, we can say, hey, that's a great question. Here's, here's how that's handled. Okay, so I want you to feel good about what we're trying to do here with how we're handling your money. Now, the third reason we should give is found in verses 22 through 24. Paul said, and with them, that is these two brothers in Titus, 
uh, or with Titus and the first unnamed brother, we're sending our brother, another person, whom we've often tested and found earnest in many matters. Now, again, we don't know this brother's name, but he is obviously not a new believer because he's been tested. He's had a season of testing and he, he was earnest to go just like Titus was. And so he's, they have confidence. Paul had confidence in this team of three. And then notice there in verse 23, as for Titus, he is my partner. Oh, I love that term. It's an intimate term that refers to someone who has a shared interest. It, it, it's, it's someone who has the same love for Jesus and the same love for people that you do. We might say someone, this, that guy or that lady has a kindred spirit. That, this is the only time Paul used this word for partner. In all of scripture, no one else was his partner but Titus. Titus is my partner. Man, this guy loves Jesus. Man, when I, when I want to learn what, what God's doing with Titus, man, I, I walk away encouraged. I walk away strengthened in my faith. Um, when I want to be challenged in my prayer life, man, talk to Titus. He's my partner. He's growing. Man, he, that guy's fasting. He's praying. He's, he's a fellow worker. That is, he's a supporter of what God is doing. He loves people. And so Paul said, Titus is my partner. And... Um, and my fellow worker, for your benefit, not for his benefit. He does this for you. This is a ministry. He willingly is going down to Corinth. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Isn't that interesting? These three men were the glory of Christ. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, we have to interpret that in the context of this book. So if you flip back, flip back a page to 2 Corinthians 4, we'll talk about what that means. In verse 4, Paul's talking about unbelievers here. And he says, in their case, this is chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel is the glory of Christ because God has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3, that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, uh, the exact imprint of his being. That is Jesus. So Jesus came to reveal the Father and the Father's love and the Father's glory. And the gospel is the glory of Christ. Have you ever shared Christ with someone and they just look at you like, hey, that's great. That does nothing for me. You know, it just, it just bounces off their heart. That's because Satan has blinded their eyes and there's scales over their eyes and they can't, they can't see who Jesus really is. They just see Jesus. Oh, maybe that's great. He's a great historical person. And maybe he's a great teacher, but they don't see him as he really is, as the son of God who loves them and gave himself for them and for, for us. They don't see him that way because they've been blinded. Well, how do you handle that? What are you supposed to do? Verse five, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. I mean, I can't, I can't penetrate that, Paul's saying. I can't penetrate that blindness. I can't call someone to see only God can do that. For we proclaim, what well, we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So he goes to unbelievers and says, I'm just going to preach Jesus Christ as Lord and I'm going to serve you. I'm going I'm to do it with my mouth and I'm going to live it with my life. And over time, I'm trusting that God is going to do what verse 6 says. Let light shine out of darkness. God did that in the beginning when he created the universe. And he does that spiritually when he says, let light shine out of darkness, Barry, in your heart. And he gives me the faith to respond with obedience and receiving him as Lord and Savior. That's the gospel. So he's saying, 
um, the gospel is the glory of Christ. And now here in verse 8, these men are the glory of Christ because they're representing the gospel. So as this churches in Macedonia gave, they gave to these men. And now as they go to Corinth, they're representing the gospel. Why? Because they went willingly. Jesus died willingly. Jesus came willingly. Jesus said, I lay down my life. Or I, I, I take it up. No one has authority over me. And so Jesus died willingly. These men go willingly. And everywhere they go, they're the fragrance of Jesus Christ. They're the gospel. And so as they're on their way to Corinth, as they're talking to people, hey, where are you going? What are you doing? Oh, man, we're here. We're going to, uh, we got, we've got an offering here. And we're going to Corinth to pick up some more. And we're going to go to Jerusalem. And, and uh, why would you do that? Because we love Jesus. Because Jesus has changed our life. Why, why would you give to that? Well, because God put that desire in my heart. And I just love Christ. And I, I can't help but just giving and serving. And out of gratitude for what he's done for me. And, and that, that is a pro proclamation of the gospel. So he's saying these guys are the glory of Jesus Christ. Okay. So the third reason we should give is our giving advances the gospel. Our giving advances the gospel. One church where I served in, we did a local missions project. Uh, it was a cool February morning, and we did, we watched school buses. We had a team there watching public school buses. So it was at one of the transportation office locations, and uh, I don't remember how many buses they had. They had a bunch. And, and we had a team, and we bought those big, you know, brushes and buckets and soap. And so we had a team that showed up to wash school buses. But we also decided we're going to buy some gift cards. And I think there were, from what I remember, there were $5 that's when you could get a Starbucks drink for $5. There was a $5 Starbucks gift card. And we wrote, we had a team that wrote handwritten thank you notes to, our, to the bus driver. So it was put in their seat. And so when they got there on Monday morning, they have a handwritten thank you note with a little $5 gift card. Just, hey, thank you for who you are. Thank you for serving our community. Thank you for investing and protecting our children. Just th those, kinds of, those kinds of comments. You want to talk about forgotten people? Bus drivers? Forgotten people. This, so we were trying to love them and encourage them. So not long after this, this Saturday, we got a call from one of the bus drivers. And she just said, hey, you know, thank you so much. I, I just, I really appreciate what you did. And um, hey, I have a son. And can, can I sign him up to be a part of your recreation league? And we said, well, well, sure, yeah. And you know what we do in the recreation league? We share the gospel. Every week, the coaches are given a devotion and they're able to share the gospel to kids every, every week. See, giving advances the gospel. Because we gave, now we're getting to share Christ with his family. That hopefully, she's taking it home and sharing with her mom. All because somebody gave. When we give, it advances the gospel, the glory of Christ. Hey, there's two more reasons. Fourth reason we should give is found in verses, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Now, the first five verses here in chapter 9, the reason those are connected to the previous section is because he's telling them now, why he's sending this team. Up to this point, he's told them who he's sending, Titus and the two unnamed brothers. But now he's going to tell them why he's sending them there. So he says, I'm writing to you about the ministry for the saints. That is the offering. So he's kindly, you know, bringing up this, this issue. For I know your readiness. I know you're eager. I know you're willing. That's what the term means. I, I know you want to do this. And the term know just means I know the position of your heart. I know that you want to give. Man, I know your heart's in the right place, Paul's saying. But you just haven't finished it. I, I, I know you want to give. I know, you have, I know you're generous. I, I know you would love to do this. But you, you just haven't done it yet. 
But notice he's not fussing at them. He says, of which I boast about you, present tense. I'm, I'm, I'm continually boasting. As, it's like as he's writing this, he's like, hey, I'm, I was just talking about you. I was just boasting about you to the church. The church is here about, about how you're ready to give and about your zeal. He's saying, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. It's interesting because earlier in chapter 8, it was the Macedonians who stirred up the Corinthians. And now it's the Corinthians who are stirring up the Macedonians. That's what generosity does. It stirs up and breeds more generosity. And so he's saying, man, you're, you have stirred up these people. Stirred up means to call someone to react in a way that suggests acceptance of a challenge. So it's like this church goes, man, hey, I see what you've done. And man, you've challenged me. And man, now I'm going to give. Now I'm more eager to give because I see what you're doing. And so that's what the Corinthians had done to this, these churches of Macedonia. So, fourth reason we should give, our giving propels others to generous giving. Our giving propels others to generous giving. Hey, we want to give a $200,000 gift to our church partner in London. He's in Northeast London, Enfield Town Community Church. They've already planted several other campuses, doing really well. God's using him, very gifted uh, man, and um, he has six children as well, by the way. Um, and so, but God's using him there, great, great young, young man. Loves the Lord, and um, we want to be able. They want to plant another campus in Turkey Street, Northeast London, very diverse area. Uh, they have an opportunity to get involved at the ground floor of a building. There'll be residential housing above it, but the ground floor is open, is available to this church campus, to this church uh, in Phil Town. They can put another campus there. Now it has a price tag, of course, and that's why we want to support them and help them. But Nathan, our church partner there plans to go to the other campuses and say, hey, this church in America has given us $200,000. Let's match what they're doing. Now, we're, we're giving it, whether they give a penny or not, we're going to give it to them because that's what we feel led to do. But we hope that our generous giving will stir them up to where they go, well, yeah, we can do that. Man, we, we feel the challenge. We feel like, man, they, they, if they can do it, we can do it. They're not even in our country. And they obviously care about us. So we need to care about our country. And we need to raise up this money as well. So we're, we're hoping our generous giving will stir up other generous uh, giving as well. Now, the final re reason we should give is found in verses 3 through 5. One more reason. He says, but I'm sending the brothers... Uh, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter. Empty just means hollow. Uh, you know, Paul's been telling the Church of the Macedonia how generous these people are. Wouldn't it be silly if, if he showed up and then they didn't have the offering ready? He thought, man, I've been, I've been telling these people how great you were. I've been telling them how generous you were. I've been telling them how, man, you, you can't wait till you get to Corinth. You're not going to believe the size of this offering. You're not going to believe how generous, how willing these people are. And he's saying, uh, you know, you need to go ahead and get that in order so that we don't all show up and it's humiliating because you, you haven't done it because I've, I found out my talk was hollow. My talk was empty. So that you may be ready as I said you would be. Verse four, otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you. We're all gonna have egg on our face here, guys. So let's, let's get it ready. Let's, let's get the offering ready. Uh, verse five, he tells me to do two things. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers, the three, to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. So that's the first thing they're to do. 
the gift you press. They, they made the commitment. They felt called to do this. So I'm going to send this team on to you. So go ahead and get the gift ready. Finish the job. Go ahead and, go ahead and get everything ready to go. And then here's the second thing. So that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. You go, what, what is an exaction? What does that mean? It means desiring to have more than one's due. Greediness, covetousness, a gift that is grudgingly given. It's used in Romans 129. It means covetousness. It means to give grudgingly because you'd rather give your money to somebody else or you'd rather spend it on yourself. So it's the idea that the money's still there, but it was not given with a willing heart. Now, would it mean much to you if someone gave an offering to say, here, just take your money. I'm tired of hearing you talk about it. Just, would you just, let's just get this over with. Would you just take it? That's grudgingly. That's what he's talking about. The reason we would act like that is because we have, we have greedy hearts. And we don't, we don't want to give. So we go, let's just, I'm so tired of hearing you talk about money. Would you just take it? And Paul said, I, I don't want you to give that way. God's not looking for your money. He's looking at your heart. I want you to have a willing heart, not just money because we, the, the Jerusalem church needs money. God's not just interested in what we do, but why we do it. Do you know, remember the story back in Numbers 13? I'm already over time, so let's just keep going. Numbers 13. <laughs> Numbers 13. Do you know, you remember the story when the spies went out? The 10 came back and said, no, we can't do it. We're like grasshoppers to them. We're, I mean, the land's good and it's, it's, it's nice, but we can't do it. Except for, you, you remember, except for Caleb and Joshua. They had, different, they had a different spirit. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. I'm in chapter 14 now. Verse 11, how, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among, this, among them? Caleb had stood up and said, come on. Let's go take it. We can do this. And they said, no, 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 we, we can't. I wish we were back in Egypt is what they were saying. Well, because of that, God sent a plague and those 10 spies died. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. This is in 14 verse 40. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are. We will go up to go to the place that the Lord has promised. We have sinned. Now, does that sound like genuine repentance? It sounds like, let's just get this over with. You wanted us to go? Fine, we'll go. Fine, you, you keep talking about it. So, all right, let's go. Let's get it over with. That's what they're doing. And Moses, is, I'll just save you the time. Moses says, no, that, that God's not in this. His presence is not going with you. This is not gonna end well. And it didn't end well. So God wasn't just interested in them going. He was interested in them, in them trusting him and in believing him and obeying him. And that's what Paul is saying. God's not just interested in a gift. He's looking for a willing gift. He's looking for a heart that says, man, I'd love to give. I, I, I give because I want to give. I give because I realize, God, you've given me so much. And this is yours anyway. And so I'm just giving an offering because you've given me breath today. You've given me life. And I have the privilege to give. That's what he's looking for. Here's chapter, uh, or number five. Our giving confronts our greed. Our giving confronts our greed. If you go down to preschool right now in any two-year-old class and you take a toy, what are they going to say? Mine, right? It may belong to the church, but they think it's there. Mine, right? You don't have to teach them to say that because 
they're naturally born, all of us are naturally born stingy and selfish. That's mine. Now, we, we don't walk around saying that, but we, sometimes we just refuse to participate. We won't say mine, we'll just, but inwardly we'll say, yeah, that's mine. That's my money. I, I earned that. I'm keeping it to myself. So every time you and I get paid, it's, a, it's an opportunity to confront the greed in our hearts. It's an opportunity to say, Lord, you've blessed me. And so now I'm going to give off the top and trust you to meet the rest. And you know what? It doesn't matter how much money you make. It's a test every time. You know, the hardest, Courtney will tell you, the hardest tie check that we wrote for a season was when we made about $750 a month. That $75 tie check was hard to write because you think, well, now we're down to $675. How are we going to make it the rest of the month, right? And you know what? God was faithful and God always provides. So it, it's, not, it's not how much you make. It's where's your heart. And every time we give, we have a chance to say, you know what, God, I'm trusting you. And before long, we'll start learning. We'll see, hey, I'm not as greedy as I used to be. God's making me a generous person. And now, actually, I enjoy giving. I, now, I, I can't wait to give. All right, let me give you a few application points uh, in the form of questions. First, are you willing to let the spotlight shine on others? Paul was. He was willing to send the brother who was well known for preaching. Paul didn't try to sabotage him. Paul didn't try to say, well, you know, he's really not that good. I mean, I'm better. But, you know, he, are you willing to let the spotlight shine on others? One, one person said, Paul feels no need to be center stage. He's quite happy to celebrate others, even when their gifts and reputation exceed his own, as they appear to do in this case. So whether you're a president of a company, mid-level manager, hourly worker, try to help somebody else look good this week. Spend your time setting up somebody else for success. Courtney and I say it this way when we try to leave the house. If, if she's leaving or I'm leaving, we'll try to say, we try to put you in a position where you can win. We try to put you in a position where you can succeed. Because, you know, if I'm leaving the house and there's dirty dishes everywhere and there's lawn, I'm not putting her in a position where she can win. I'm putting her in a position where she's going to be working all day. But if we help each other out, then we, let's, let's try to help each other here. Second, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the highest, are your personal and business affairs done with integrity? How would you rate yourself? Would you be a 10? Would you be an eight? Would you be a five? How, how would you rate yourself? Because people are watching. People took great, or Paul took great pains to avoid any sign of mismanagement. Third, do you have at least one close friend with a similar passion for Jesus? Oh, Paul had Timothy, or he had Timothy, but he also had Titus. He had his partner, his fellow partner. What about you? Do you, do you have a Titus? Do you have another lady, another man in your life that loves Jesus Christ and loves people like you do and is not impressed with you? You know what I mean? You, you know, Dr. Hendricks used to say it this way. You can impress people from far away, but you impact them up close. People can be impressed with you, but you can impact them if you get to know them. Fourth, is there anything unfinished in your life? Having a beginning is not the same as having finished, one source wrote. Is there anything unfinished? This offering was unfinished when Paul wrote this. Has God put something on your heart that's unfinished? Is it a, a degree maybe God put on your heart years ago or a ministry or a conversation with a neighbor or something you thought, man, uh, I've been, I, know, I, know, I know I need to do that, uh, but it's just unfinished. Now, now's a good time to say, God, would you help me, help me finish that? Well, did, the, did uh, the Corinthians finish? Yes, they did. Romans 15, 26, Paul said, for Macedonia 
and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Corinth was part of Achaia. For they were pleased to do it. They gave willingly. So apparently when Paul got there, the offering was ready, and he saw they did it with a willing heart. Hey, you can too. All of us can. As more Union soldiers flooded into Washington, D.C., Clarissa took note of all these soldiers. She saw they really had nowhere to go. Who's going who's gonna to care for them? Well, she stepped up and said, I'll do it. So she began sacrificing her time, her money. Um, one night, she showed up at the Battle of Cedar Mountain. After midnight, the wagon full of supplies. Surgeons had run out earlier that day and of supplies, so she showed up, and she was, she was ready. She kept them going. Sometimes she would show up with lanterns for the surgeons. So they could continue their work at night. She wanted to be on the front lines. And uh, so she uh, got, in 1862, the U.S. Surgeon General said, you know what, you can go, you have permission to go to the front lines of the battlefield. At the Battle of Antietam, she was there caring for a wounded soldier. And it said, it, it, the story says she was so close to the, the front lines that a bullet went through the sleeve of her dress. Angel of the Battlefield was her nickname. She went door to door in Washington and businesses and residences trying to raise money for the troops. She would rent ads in newspapers looking for socks and other supplies. She did all kinds of things. She provided food and water and held their wounded heads in her arms. Once the war was over, Clarissa led a search for missing soldiers. And then she went on to Europe where she worked with the International Red Cross. And she was there for a period of time helping the hurting as you would imagine. And then finally she came back home and she got back to America and she said, you know what? We need an organization here that will help hurting people. And so you know her as, uh, I'm, I'm calling her Clarissa, but you know her as, because that was her birth name, but you know her as Claire Barton. In 1881, Claire Barton at age 59 began the American Red Cross and served as its leader for 23 years. She devoted her life to helping hurting people and she gave willingly of her time and money, because that was her passion. You see, Jesus became poor, and because out of his poverty, that we might become rich. Do, you need, do we need any other reason why we should give? Would you stand with me? Let's pray about that. For some of you, maybe the, the best gift that you could give today would not be your money, it would be your heart. It would be giving your heart to Jesus Christ. And for some of you, you've heard about him, you've known him, but maybe you haven't seen him as he truly is. You've seen him as, yeah, you know he's there, you know he was a historical person, but you've never confessed your sin and received him as your Lord and Savior because you've not believed he was the Son of God. And my friend, if that's you right now, right where you are, you can be saved. You can confess your sin to the Father. Believe upon Jesus Christ that he died in your place, bearing your sin. And you can receive him to be your Lord and Savior. You have to ask him. You have to do that. We, we can't do that for you. You have to do that. But you can do that right now. Others of you might say, you know, I've been giving, but I, I've not been giving from a willing heart. I've been giving grudgingly. And you know, no one's going to know that but you and the Lord or maybe your spouse. But maybe you want to just confess that and say, Lord, I, I want to be a generous giver. I, I don't want to be full of greed. I want, to, I want to have a cheerful heart every time I give to you. So maybe you want to do business with the Lord right now. 
Others of you, you already are generous givers, but maybe you, you would say, I want to give more. I, I want to I be more involved. I want to, because God has done so much for me, I want to take it to another level. Whatever God's telling you to do, I want you to encourage you to respond in obedience. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.